Watch this. Welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. I'm your host for today, Sam Williams, and in the chair, I'm joined by Sir Bruce Fitzpatrick. Howdy. And we've got Lou Stagner on as well. Lou is a golf stat pro, a golf nerd and data geek, and we're really looking forward to talking to him. But before we before we jump over to him, uh, don't forget, guys, you can get in touch with us on all of our social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, YouTube. And this week, we will be dropping... Another story of a golf club film, and we really hope you guys enjoy it. So that will be out Thursday, 5 p.m. UK time. Um, so without further ado, it's over to Lou. Lou Stagner, welcome to the Cookie Jar Pod. How are you doing? Uh, doing well. Thanks for having me on today. No, it's uh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, Lou, you're on here to talk about golf numbers and help maybe, you know, decode some of the some of the stuff we see out there and help simplify things a little bit for the amateur golfer before we jump into that do you want to maybe just give us a very brief introduction to you and how you've kind of got into doing all this in the first place yeah sure no problem so i i my i have a day job in corporate america uh, i run an analytics team at a large company based in the northeast and uh, a couple of years ago right around this time um, I, I told my wife i was going to start a blog on golf analytics and and she said um and i quote well you're really a lot of fun at parties aren't you and uh, uh so i i started yeah. um, blogging about golf analytics uh, you know analytics being my day job it's something i've been interested in for some time uh, i have been very involved in my own analytics for as long as i've been playing the game uh in the mid-teens i started to dabble in pro analytics uh, and, and then started the blog in 2018 with no intention of monetizing it in any way and, and really no expectations of, of many people beyond some of my golf buddies reading some of the things that I put out. And it, uh, it blossomed very quickly. And uh, about a year ago or so, I partnered with uh, Scott Fawcett of Decade. And so Scott and I have been working together for the past year. And, and here we are. Oh, fantastic. And there's, I think you've now got about 15,000 people on Twitter that you, uh, to use your words, regularly bore with uh, with the latest bit of insight that comes out, Lou. Um, yeah, which is, uh, which is pretty crazy. Sorry to interrupt there. Um, I, no. I was not really a social media person prior to doing this. Uh, I had a Facebook account and um, you know, friends and family, very small group and didn't use it very much and didn't use Twitter. I created an account years ago, but never used it until I started doing golf analytics. And I, and I think when I started, I, I maybe had four followers, like, like maybe my wife and, and a few Russian bots. And uh, <laughs> that was about the extent of it. And, and so to go from not being a social media user in any way, shape or form to having 15,000 followers has been a very interesting experience. Uh, well, I mean, to, to to kind of to sort of jump into it a little bit, I want to kind of preface this pod with the concept of strokes gained is something that I think some some of our listeners will understand quite well, and to a lot of people, it's probably something they hear a lot about but maybe don't understand. And I thought before we jumped into it, given that things like strokes gained were going to be quite common terminology, perhaps for the next thirty five minutes, that we 
took the time to just understand what strokes gained is. And Mark Brody's book felt like a bit of a watershed moment in the in the world of golf statistics. How can you best simplify that that term and how it's used across golf for our listeners? Luke? Yeah, that's a, a great question. It's it's a question that I, I still get in my field from from folks and. One of my golf buddies, great player, low single-digit player. He played on the plus side for years. Um, you would think somebody like that would have an intimate understanding of strokes gained and what it is, but, but he didn't. And maybe a year ago or so, a little bit less, he asked me about strokes gained and asked me to explain it. And uh, I posted this on Twitter. I think it was around Christmas time last year. And it, uh, it was very well received. I gave an analogy of strokes gained um, around driving to work. So if I were to ask you how far away, uh, you know, how far away is work for you? Um, very common, someone will answer, oh, it's about a 15-minute ride. They, they didn't say it was 4.7 miles, or in your case, you know, seven kilometers. They gave you how long it was going to take them to drive there. And that's sort of, in a, in a nutshell, the essence of strokes gained. So if I'm a, a tour pro, and I'm in the fairway, and I'm 168 yards from the hole, I can tell you if someone says how far away from you are, how far away are you from the hole? It's 168 yards, and that would be analogous to I'm seven kilometers from work. But from 168 yards in the fairway for a tour pro, it takes an average of about three shots to get in the hole. And so that analogy would would be towards it takes me 15 minutes to drive to work. So that's sort of the hardest strokes gained. So everywhere you are on the golf course. There's an average number of shots that it's going to take for you to get in the hole. After you hit your shot, you are now in a position where you are a certain distance from the hole. You're in a certain lie. And from that spot, it's going to take you, on the average, a certain number of strokes. So back to our our example from 168 yards in the fairway. It's about three shots to get in the hole per tour pro. If they hit that ball on the green and it's 33 feet from the hole, from there it's about two putts to get in the hole, they break even, strokes gain, approach. They, they were three shots from the hole, they took a swing, the ball landed on the green, and they ended two shots from the hole. So it took them one shot to cover one shot worth of ground. Sometimes it takes people a little bit to grasp that, and I hope it makes sense um, you know, in audio. Uh, sometimes it's easier to show this with a diagram and an example, but hopefully that makes sense to your listeners. I think that that's a that's a very simple way of putting it, and it, it made total sense to me. And I, I really enjoyed recently reading Mark, Mark Brody's book. And your idea there would be how it would translate if I put it to five or ten feet, and I'm a tour pro from 168 yards. Statistically, I'm likely to get it in the ball in less putts than two, and therefore I've gained a certain number of strokes with my approach play. And I think I think that's kind of the essence of understanding then how com- how, how kind of strategy feeds its way into the game. Good just crap. looking just looking at the at the amateur side of the game then to kind of kick things off, Lou. When you look at that and therefore strokes gained, and you talk about something quite simple there, like 168 yards takes an average of three shots to get in the hole for a pro. I think the amateur golfers really guilty of kind of falling into, to a certain extent, a, a, a mismanagement of their own expectations. How much of that do you see in the in the stat work that you do at the moment? You know, I think that's pretty significant. And I think some of that is driven by what we see on television. 
Um, we are seeing the best players in the world, and more than likely, we're seeing the best players in the world that are playing the best that week. So they are on their game, and, and we get fed a steady diet of seeing the best playing your absolute best. And that uh, can alter our expectations for our own game. And when people start to see some of the actual numbers uh, for tour pros, not, not just the ones that are playing well and you're seeing on TV, but the entire tour, um, it really puts things in, in perspective for how well they are playing or are or, or, or not playing. And you know, one of the things that I will caveat that by saying at the tour level, one of the things that's missing that is critical that we don't have uh, is intention. And unless we know exactly where they're trying to hit the ball, um, we can't gauge how well they pulled off the shot. Uh, the only uh, thing we can measure that against uh, in, in, with respect to approach shots is where is it in relation to the hole or is it on the green or off the green? Um, if I'm back at 170 yards to a tucked pin and I pick a target 22 feet to the right of that and I hit my target exactly, it looks like I missed my spot by, by 22 feet, uh, which isn't, isn't you know, completely accurate. So the only way we would truly know how close they are hitting it is if we had their intention. And I guess that's where your collaboration with um, Scott Fawcett in Decade is, is, you know, promises to be quite effective um, for players lowering their scores because there you get the kind of expectation management and um, how you go about selecting correct targets combined with a, you know, a means in strokes gained of, of evaluating your performance, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It really comes down to um, uh, selecting a mathematically correct target, and you do that by understanding shot dispersions. And even the best players in the world, they pick a target, and the way Scott d- describes it is you're not a sniper, you're, you're a shotgun. And even the best in the world will pick a target, and they will have a cluster of shots around the target. And what you're trying to do is pick a spot to aim to that – puts that cluster of shots in the most optimal position so that over the long term, you will have the best expected score. And, and there's uh, the way Scott designed this, um, the math um, it is what the math is, and it helps you select those appropriate targets um, based on the situation. And it's quite, um, I mean, I've, I've used Decade a little bit actually over the last six months. So yeah, I've had an introduction to some of Scott's work and something that, I mean, just to piggyback off what Sam was saying there, it is quite surprising that um, the shot patterns for the best players in the world are so wide. Um, I guess he, something that he's kind of well known for advocating is, is hitting a lot of drivers. Um, if you're landing area or the distance between um, penalty hazards is 65 yards or more, which seems like quite a significant window. But actually, I mean, there's, I think there's data of Jason Day, you know, hitting shots on a track man a few years ago when he was world number one and pretty healthily in the, in the positive strokes gained off the tee. And he had a dispersion of like 70 yards wide off the tee, which just doesn't, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess to the armchair listener, who's just a bit interested in golf, but doesn't follow their stats. That seems crazy. It does seem crazy, and the dispersion is significantly wider than than you would imagine. Uh, one of the things that they they provide in uh, the shot link data is not just um, how far the ball went and did it hit the fairway or not hit the fairway, but they they let you know how far the ball is from the center of the fairway. 
and 65% on the tour level, 65% of tee shots are within a 30-yard window. So they're either 15 yards left or right of the middle of the fairway. 95% are within 33 yards of the middle, so 66-wide-yard shot pattern. And um, it, it's mm. really surprising to people to see how far offline players hit the ball as a tour pro. They think everything is within a 10 to 15 yard wide window and they occasionally creep one off to the side. They have relatively large shot patterns uh, with the driver and with every club in the bag. When you look at uh, their dispersion and you plot it out and you see where balls are. Now, again, we talked about we don't know the intention, but you can find certain situations, certain holes, and you can pretty well understand what the intention is for most of them. I think one of the examples you can probably find out there is, you know, you know Scott has made a couple of videos about 17 at Sawgrass, and, and especially if the wind is up just a smidge, uh, they're trying to hit the center of the green, and you can see the dispersion. It's a, it's a fair-sized green, but you can see with a wedge in their hand how big of a shot pattern the best in the world have, and that's true up and down the back. And does that shot pattern, does that vary from week to week with, with certain players? Or do you think for the best players in the world, it's, it's, it's usually pretty fixed? I mean, by that, I mean, if someone's regarded as maybe a really strong iron player, I mean, uh, I guess Tiger's maybe an example of that. He's someone who is known as probably one of the best iron players, if not the best iron player of all time, but, but not necessarily a consistent driver. Would they, in theory, adjust sort of the expectations for, for, what their target would be when hitting driver versus irons. And I mean, in his case, would he have a much tighter shotgun pattern and therefore a tighter target um, if he was following that kind of methodology? Well, you know, that's a, that's a good question. And I, I think it's a, a bit of a, a mix of an answer. And I think someone like Tiger, uh, who is arguably the best iron player of all time, I wish we had strokes gain data. Uh, from mm. pre-2004, it would allow us to understand a whole lot better the, the way the game was played and how it was played uh, by the players from pre-2004. Uh, but with the data that we do have, um, in, in using Tiger as the example, uh, I think any player, regardless of the category, if you look at um, best iron player, Tiger's going to be up there. If you look at best driver of the golf ball, Rory's going to be in there. Bubba's going to be in there. If you look at best putter, Brad, someone like Brad Faxon, uh, at the tail end of his career when he was in the shot link era would be in there. Jason Day and a few others. Um, around the green, there's a couple of players that bubble up around the green that, that um, are, are spectacular. And regardless of the category, they are going to probably tend to do better overall in that category. So Tiger, as the best iron player, when you start to peel back the, the first layer of the onion, what you see is Tiger was um, – playing a very, very sound strategy. So if you've followed Scott, he talks about the decade ratio. And the decade ratio, having a certain number percent of your approach shots on the fat side of the hole. And if you take a look at the way Tiger played the game, he did a spectacular job at um, picking very, very appropriate targets. And there's an interview that's out there where Tiger said, I I'm very, I play very aggressive, but I pick conservative targets. So I play very, very aggressive to a conservative target. And when you look at the numbers, you can see that Tiger um, did, did play that way. And it is much better off to have a 40-foot putt than to short side yourself. 
And golf is ultimately, especially at more elite levels, golf is ultimately about short-sighting yourself less. And if you can short-sight yourself less, you're going to score better. Putting yourself in an awkward position on a short side is putting yourself in a spot where bogey is far more likely. You're far more likely to make bogey being short-sighted than you are at a three-putt from 40 feet. It's just how the numbers are. And Tiger did a fantastic job at, at managing that. It's interesting hearing you talk about you know people like Tiger Woods you think about like you say Brad Faxon as one of the better putters you look at people like Rory as a better driver one of the things that's come up before actually with Chris Trott when we had him on last time was talking about to be one of the world's best players on the on the PGA tour or, or any professional tour for that matter you really need to be exceptional in one particular category and that carries more weight than being slightly above average perhaps across a broad spectrum of categories so you know and i guess the most obvious example of that today is probably bryson and you know the prodigious distance he's hitting the ball now does that kind of tally up with the numbers and the stats you see and there's some is there some reason behind that that, as to why that would be the case well i think um it probably goes for all golfers that we we all uh, excel at certain parts of the game and and I'm better at putting than I am at, with my driver, in my personal example. Um, I think at the tour level, they are uh, exceptional in every category compared to people that aren't on the, on the tour. But if you look at the best on tour, while someone like Rory clearly uh, is a better driver, uh, and that is a, a core strength of his game, the best players on the planet, they excel in every category. If you, and, and, and when I say the best players, I'm talking about the ones that are top on the money list. If you look at the ones that finish at the top of the, of the money list for that year and you look at them as a group across mm. all four categories, off the tee, approach, around the green, and putting, they are going to perform better in all four of those categories than the rest of the tour will, any other group you want to look at. So they are exceptional in every category, and you need to be exceptional in every category if you want to um, finish near the top of the money list. And, and and just kind of following on from that a little bit, you, one of the oldest adages in the game has always been sort of this concept of drive for show and putt for dough and the implication being that putting is, of course, the most critical part of the game. I know there's a, quite a bit of research done around this. What's your read on the different disciplines within the game, be it off the tee, be it approach, be it kind of short shots and, and putting? How do they kind of rank in terms of relative kind of importance across both the amateur and professional game because that's quite that's not doesn't always stack up with that kind of old adage right it doesn't and you know mark brody really uh he he's the one that shined the light on this and, and approach play uh, clearly is the best stat that you can look at to determine long-term success without question approach play is critical it's important uh, the rest of the categories, that, across all categories, there's variance. So players are going to have better days. They're going to have worse days in every category. The one thing that doesn't change too, too often um, is how far you're hitting the ball. So that's the one thing that you can show up with every single day. You can generally expect to have that. Rory is not going to show up to the course and start hitting drives that only carry 260. It's just simply not going to happen. Will he have days where he hits his driver a little bit straighter? Absolutely. Uh, but he's going to hit the same distance. Uh, iron play, you will have good days, you will have bad days. The best iron players will have less bad days or their 
bad days won't be as bad. Uh, so that's true across any category. Brad Faxon will have bad days with the putter, but his bad day isn't going to be as bad as, um, you know, I'll pick on Rory. Rory's known for not being the best putter. Um, and so I think that's true across all the categories. I think it seems something that um, a couple of like sort of technical swing instructors are, have been chatting about recently online is that there maybe is an element of uh, you can't be great at all categories um, purely from maybe a technical standpoint. I mean, you look at someone like Rory, who is known as being the best driver of the ball in the modern game and maybe gets a little bit like underplaying and hits these high bomb draws with driver and long irons. But when that comes to wedges, you know, he's going to hit the odd kind of loopy high wedge and short iron. And conversely, someone like Tiger, who's a fantastic short iron player, maybe his technique won't carry further up the bag to the driver. Do you think that's something that is going to continue to make this game rewarding and actually gonna guard against some of the hyperbole we've heard about distance rendering golf courses obsolete? I mean, there's just a maybe a technical um, rule in there that it, it's hard to swing the club in a way that's effective throughout the bag from driver through to wedge. Yeah, you know, I wish I was more of a, a swing doctor. Um, if you if you saw my swing, you'd understand very clearly that I'm not. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, Tiger, you bring up Tiger as not being a, a good driver of the golf ball. Uh, but early on in his career, Tiger was a really good driver mm-hmm. of the golf ball. If you look back at yeah. the stats, I wish we had strokes gained from back then because he would have been he would have been near the top. Um, if not at the very top you know, early on in his career. Now, not only could he hit it long, but he hit it pretty straight. Uh, I believe a few years he was at 70% or above 70% of fairways and, you know, either one or two in distance. But that's a pretty healthy combination yeah. right there. Uh, so he said he was going to catch Fred Funk, I think, didn't he? He, he made a joke to Fred <laughs> Funk, who I think was the straightest driver on the tour and said, I'm coming for you, Freddie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Funk, boy, Funk was, um, he had to be 50 yards shorter than Tiger back then. and But he mm. hit probably upper 70s. I don't remember exactly, but he was definitely upper 70s and percentage in, in the, almost in the Calvin Pete uh, land of accuracy. Uh, but you know, to your point about different swings, uh, um, resulting in different strengths. I think that's probably true. Um, you definitely would be better suited to have a, a swing doctor on here as opposed to a, a math nerd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you talked a little bit there about Tiger being 50 yards. And when you say it, 50 yards doesn't sound much, does it? It's back to your concept of, you know, what's that 30 seconds in the car? Why does that make any difference on my commute if it's half a kilometer? But it makes a huge difference. So, can you give us some context in terms of those different distances and how they, what the difference would be then on a PGA Tour player? So, you know, I'm thinking the tail here around your strokes gained or, the, you know, the shot averages from certain distances because 50 yards might not sound like a lot in terms of how that relates at a score level. I suspect that's quite significant. It is quite significant. Uh, 10 yards, if you can add an additional 10 yards in distance on tour, it's worth between 0.6 and 0.7 shots per round. The 10 yards is, is nearly three quarters of a stroke per round better scoring average for a player on tour. So and what would that right translate to? Sorry, Lou. So 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, what's the, you know, because I, again, I, th- I think I've got an idea that's quite significant. That's not marginal, is it, in terms of no, money, money earnings and stuff? Yeah, money earnings. Um, I, I put something out about money earnings uh, quite some time ago. And, and 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.7 shots, depending 
on the player, the situation, good weeks, you know, when your timing is, uh, that's seven figures. Um, it's seven figures in additional earnings. And I believe a quarter of a shot per round, depending on the player, uh, was worth anywhere between $150,000 and $400,000 per year in additional earnings to be a quarter shot per round better. Wow. So becoming through distance 0.6 to 0.7 shots per round better, it's a significant amount of cash. If I had even a speck of athletic ability and was able to play the tour level, um, I would be, I would be doing everything I could to get to, you know, a playing speed of 125. It's all that I would do. Uh, it's all that I would focus on. Wow. It's yeah. That's so compelling here. And you talk about that. That's my so, uh, Yeah. I made the, I, so I started to, uh, to use a phrase, eat my own dog food. Um, I, before uh, marriage, before kid, um, I played down around scratch and I was never the longest, but I wasn't short. My swing speed was in the 108 range. And then about 10 years ago, I, my daughter was born and I just stopped playing a lot, got older, lost some speed. About this time last year, I made it, I, I dedicated myself to getting faster. And I went from 99 last year, roughly, to about a playing speed of 114 now. So I, I picked up about five to six miles per hour of swing speed above what I was back when I was a scratch player. And the game has been, I mean, to have 30 to 40 yards more off the tee compared to last year, it's, it's a different game completely. Um, I, I'm hitting the ball in places that I, I've never hit the ball. Uh, and um, I, I'm, my goal for, for next year is to have a playing speed of 120, see if I can get there. But I'm getting a little long in the tooth. It, it might be tough. <laughs> that extra 30 or 40 yards it's I, I get that sometimes lou when i play foursomes with bruce um i kind of get that that same feeling of what it would be like one day it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty further, special feeling 30 40 yards further into the trees though i can appreciate that so so you're moving that on then a sec because that's where it gets interesting is that extra 10 20 30 40 yards whether it's bryson or any player you know bryson's not the only one who who realizes the potential value in realizing distance being really honest there's a lot of um vitriol online about how you dial back distance how we roll back technology then it starts to feed into a discussion with course architects people like mike clayton who'd be really outspoken about things like that I suppose the the question I want to ask is one: Why at a professional level would you not want to? Why would you want to roll back distance? Because presumably, distance would remain to be a differentiator. But then, how do courses and course designers then start to accommodate that for what is a very small population of overall golfers? Yeah, that um, it is a very small population of overall golfers. If you if you look at the the distance insight report that that came out recently. Um, they have a study in there around amateur driving distance. And you can also take a look at uh, the shot scopes and the arcoses of the world. And they've put out information around amateur driving distance and hitting the ball too far for, for amateur players. is just, it's not, it's not a problem. Even though I'm generally one of the longer ones in my group, um, I'm, I'm not a plus four. You know, I, I don't go out and shoot 65 at my, at my club. Uh, my index, I finished this year around a five. Uh, so I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not tearing up a golf course, even though I can hit the ball long. Uh, so at an amateur level, distance is not an issue in any way, shape or form, in my opinion. And at the pro level, I always look at it as the game evolves. 
that distance is just one of those things that evol- that has evolved. And um, I understand where the you know the architects and the historians are, are coming from and, and the position that they have on it. And um, it, it's an opinion, um, and I think their opinion is just as valid and correct as mine. Um, I, I'm I'm comfortable with the the, the distance boom. Um, and I think things are always going to change. And, and I think the, you know, one way to look at it, the way that I always look at it is when someone says, I want to roll it back, I always ask, well, what year do you want to roll it back to? And whatever year they give, I can always subtract 50 years from that and pretend I'm somebody from that time frame and say, well, you know, the technology that you want to roll it back to is so much more advanced than what it was 50 years prior. You know, why not go back 50 years prior? There was more technology change in the game from, you know, 1890 to 1940 than there has been from 1940 to 2020 from a distance perspective. And all of those courses that are, you know, the, the, the courses that everyone talks about um, be, being rendered obsolete through distance are the courses that were created when that happened the first time, right? So the courses back in 1890s were significantly shorter than they were in the 1930s because of the distance boom, because of technology because of the golf ball. So I don't dispute at all that players are hitting the ball significantly further than they used to, because they certainly are. I just, um, I, I don't have a problem with it. So kind of a, a long-winded answer. Hopefully I, I answered your question. No, that, that's um, that's a very interesting take on it, and one that I certainly have some sympathy with. I think, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you've looked at the numbers in, in, in great detail, when you look at course length, for instance, is there a rough idea or a rough kind of guesstimate one can make as to how long the course should be, you know, for a scratch golfer or dare I even say a tour pro for it to be challenging if they hit the ball 320 yards or 350 yards versus say 280. I mean, I guess the argument now is that to, to challenge these guys, seven and a half thousand yards is going to be the new normal where maybe back in Jack Nicholas's day, it was 6,700 with that. I mean, is that kind of the right way of maybe looking at it? Um, it, it could be. Um, I mean, it, 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 I certainly understand that perspective. Um, I think if you look, I, I put it out recently. If, if you look at the actual playing length on tour, uh, they play courses much, much shorter than is what, what's on the scorecard mm. yardage. Um, and I forget yeah, the really. exact numbers, but a huge percentage of the time they are playing the course two to 300 yards shorter or 150 to 300 yards shorter than what it is on the scorecard. And not too long ago, I posted something about some yardages from Sawgrass and, and you can go back and scroll through my tweets and I never did the unveil on it. But the premise of the, of the tweet was these are all of the holes on Sawgrass and here is the distance that a player would have left for their approach shot if they hit the average length drive on tour. And I gave the list of numbers and, and so sort of asked the question is, are these okay? They look okay to me. And a few people jumped in and, and said, um, you know, these are ridiculous. It's too many short irons. And I even sent it to one of the, you know, one of my architect friends. Um, you may or may not have mentioned him earlier. And great guy. Uh, and we have a lot of, you know, great debates back and forth. And I said, are these too short? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And I said, e- even for your day? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, but I tricked everybody. Those numbers were from 1983. 
So I put the 1983 numbers out there. Um, and if you look at the distribution of shots on tour, there's a fair number of shots that happen from, you know, outside of 175 yards. And I'm okay with the distribution. Uh, I think it tests the game adequately. And I think what's happened that people don't talk about too much with respect to distance. People want more long irons in the game. They want longer approach shots. And I think what's happened is some of that has shifted to second shots on par fives where players, and I wish I had more data on this. I do have data from 2004 to 2020 and the number of players going from the green has gone up six or 7%. I think it's like 38% to maybe 44, 45, 46%. So there's been a jump as players understood closer is generally better. And I think what happened is back then, less players went for the greens on par fives and they had more wedges as third shots on par fives. Well, there's been a little bit of a shift there. And so you see more long irons now in, in hybrids on par fives, uh, at, whereas that used to just be a layup shot and a wedge shot. So I, I think there's a similar number of long irons that are hit today. They're just hit on different holes and they're hit in different ways. Mm. Uh, I wish I had data to back that up from you know the 70s, 80s, 90s. I don't. It's just an assumption. Um, so I'll just kind of leave that as the caveat. That's interesting, and, and just kind of moving us on through some of some of your other research here, Lou. The one of the one of our listeners actually put a question to us that said, "Is there any way of computing mental pressure into statistics to figure out what goes on beyond just the scores of, you know, club head speed, how far we hit it, strokes gained? Is there any way that through the stuff you've done in your research, we can actually kind of?" blend that in to see who's the better who's the better player under the gun and and, and what how, what some of those stats look like because i know there's a lot of a lot of opinion out there as to people who don't have good sundays for example when they're in contention you know that's that is how i started that was the very first thing i did when i started my blog about golf analytics it, it started uh, there's a, a guy out there his name's will haskett he announces for pga tour radio and he has a podcast which is about you know golf and statistics. And so I was naturally drawn to that and I listened to his pod. And he had um, he, he had talked about performance in the clutch, performance under the gun, your exact question. And he had a couple of guys on there from 15th Club. And they were talking about how to measure performance in the clutch. You know, we really need that. Um, some people have been working on that and I thought that's really interesting. It's something I want to tackle. And so I tackled it and it was the very first blog post I put out. I built an app that allowed you to look at performance in different situations. And the, the main context of this one was around how well you perform, uh, given how many shots you are, uh, from the lead. And, and you could break it down by, uh, by round. You could break it down in a number of different ways. But the thing that was absolutely fascinating to me, um, regardless of the round that you look at, the players as a group that performed the worst were players that were in the lead. And I didn't control for everything I could have controlled for because I, I believe, um, and I'm doing a next iteration, the next version of that, I believe what you might find is there are certain situations where a player may have 
a three or a four shot lead and they may play a par five a little bit more conservatively than they normally would uh, because they're protecting against that lead, protecting against a big number. Uh, but overall, on the whole, players in the lead perform the worst um, at, regardless of, of who they are, what round you look at. Um, it, it was um, it was really fascinating to me. Yeah, and I guess it kind of goes back to your point somewhat there. Is it's, it's, I guess, intention is the one thing we are missing from from stats, and who knows if there is ever going to be a way to to factor that in there to to um, maybe figure out if those targets do become a bit more conservative on a Sunday. I mean, obviously, we've we've all heard the famous Tiger quotes about making them, you know, come to him and going out and protecting a lead, but. Um, yeah, I mean, irrespective of that, it, it, I think that's maybe why the CJ Cup this past weekend was quite interesting because it was such a wide open tournament and, you know, Kokrat had to go and shoot 64 in the final round just to just to win over Showplay because it because there were kind of birdies and low scores out there. And do you think there's maybe been a, a step change somewhat in the professional game where it's kind of like 20 under par is, is almost becoming the regular winning score for a tour event now and... and these young guys who are coming through, the likes of Matt Wolf and Colin Morikawa, Victor Hovland, etc., that they're almost coming out with a, a, a no fear attitude. Really, they're, they're, they've, they've looked at the data and they've, they've attended maybe one of Scott's seminars and they, they're able to be a, bit, a lot more dispassionate about their golf. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. You can see over the last two to three years, there's been a big shift in, uh, I'll call it aggressiveness, and aggressiveness might mean. Um, choosing driver in, uh, as opposed to situations in the past where they wouldn't. And I think that's one of the misconceptions around distance is, 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 at least in my opinion, I think some folks think distance is just, you know, Bryson drinking eight protein shakes a day and trying to hit, you know, get 210 ball speed. Um, and that's not always what distance means. Distance means hitting it, making a choice to hit it further um, it, making it a choice to hit it as far as you can, as often as you can, might be a better way to say that. So as opposed to laying back with three wood or a driving iron of some sort, which was more common, that was definitely common thinking back in the day. Um, well, I remember you know, being a scratch player and playing with other scratch players, and there was a hole in my club, and you know, this is very anecdotal, but it was a par five that you couldn't reach in two. You can't reach it in two, so there's absolutely, you know, or you couldn't reach it in two unless it was your best day. So there's absolutely no reason in trying to hit anything off the tee other than a four iron. And um, very, very uh, flawed thinking, right? And so what Brody did when he released strokes gain, he shined this light on being closer is better, taking into account trouble. So avoid trouble, but try to advance the ball as close as you possibly can. And I take a tour pro, you know, 60 yards is an uncomfortable yardage for, for players. Uh, but I'd rather have a tour pro. I'll take a tour pro at 60 yards all day long versus a tour pro with a full swing at 110. I don't, I don't care what the hole is, where it is. I'm going to take that all day, every day, because they're going to hit it closer from 60 yards. Now, does it feel great when you have a 60-yard shot and you hit it to 16 feet? No, probably doesn't feel that great. But from 110 yards, you're going to hit a whole lot of shots to 30 feet from 110 yards, a whole lot of them. And overall, your proximity is going to be closer from 60 yards, even though it might not feel as great. And I think that's one of the 
one of the things that, that factors into it for some of these players is it doesn't feel great to hit it to 17 feet from, uh, from 60 yards. So I'm, I'm not going to try to advance it any further uh, on a layup yeah. shot. I'm going to lay back and give myself a full wedge where you've just cost yourself, if you play that hole a thousand times, you probably cost yourself three or four feet in average proximity. And you've probably missed two or three more percent of greens, maybe a little bit more, depending on the player. So if you play the hole enough, you just cost yourself a tenth of a shot, five one hundredths of a shot, which if you do that every round, as we talked about earlier, a quarter of a shot is worth several hundred thousand dollars in earnings. But if I can shave off five one hundredths of a shot just by advancing it a little bit further, well, that's money in my pocket. It's incredible hearing you talk about it. And like like you say, I think it almost goes full circle to where we started the podcast and, and conscious of your time here as well, Lou. But expectation management, isn't it? From 60 yards, it doesn't feel as comfortable to be 15 feet away, but it's more comfortable to be 15 feet away from 110. And I think that's what that whole concept of confirmation bias being another issue in, in the game, I think, for the amateur golfer, but also kind of expectation management. I want I want you to kind of pull on a few things here that you've you've kind of uncovered on your journey within all this. What, what, you know, whether it's for the amateur golf or the professional golfer in terms of statistics, where it's like, yeah, that's scary. I never looked at it that way, or you know, maybe for the amateur golfer where it was like where actually you see someone playing golf who might not understand the statistics and just think like shut up that you're so far wide of the mark there you don't realize how much rubbish you're talking here you know that kind of you must have a few of these that sort of call them your boring party tricks if you will <laughs> yeah there's there's maybe there's maybe a few of those but um i think at the amateur level and i'm not and i'm going to maybe go in a different direction here and maybe not directly answer that but i think at the amateur level what is is critical is you you, you need to track your stats and I, I don't care if you are tracking at a shot level detail um, and you are using one of the many apps out there to do that. Um, you know, decades, one of them, um, which is what I'm part of. Uh, but I don't care what you use, even if you do it on the back of a napkin, tracking at a shot level detail is going to give you the greatest amount of information. Um, if you're not into that, I realize that not everyone's into numbers. You have to start tracking some things um, so you can understand weaknesses and strengths in your game. It'll allow you to focus your practice better so that you can improve on the things you need improving on. And to your point about confirmation bias, unless you're tracking and unless you're looking at your actual numbers, you are not going to have a full appreciation as to what you truly need to work on. Anecdotally, you might know. But you really need the numbers to back that up. And if you don't want to get uh, involved in shot level tracking, you can, as an amateur player, you can start to track some things that are, you know, that are important. Um, greens and regulation, we obviously know that there's a, a very direct correlation with greens and regulation and what your handicap is going to be. Avoiding penalty shots off the tee, absolutely critical. Keep it in play. Um, keep it in play off the tee. And if you track anything about uh, your game, how many tee shots are playable? Um, I don't even care if it's in the rough or the fairway, but is it playable? Did you just hit it into somebody's backyard and you got to reload? Or did you put it into the rough and you can play it? Um, or are you off in the woods somewhere and you're pitching out backwards? And that's a stat that no one ever mentions, right? That's a right. stat. No, people say how many times they got up and down or they'll say how many putts they had in the round, which right. when you think about it are the most um, kind of opaque statistic to really 
translate into anything meaningful for a golfer. You know? Correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's the Tiger Five and Tiger had his five and, and Scott has turned that into in the foundations program in decade. It's no bogeys on par fives, no double bogeys, no three putts, no bogeys inside 150 and, and don't chip the ball twice. Right. So and I don't mean double chip it. I just mean, you know, if you have uh, an around the green shot, just make sure you put it on the green. Don't don't not put it on the green. I forget who did it yesterday. Was it Lanto Griffin? It was maybe on 16 or 17. You know, he he had a really tough shot, but you know, he was maybe six or seven feet off the edge of the green, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe 12 feet. And he only advanced the ball about six feet. Um, and he still now had to get up and down for bogey. Um, and so just make sure you put it on the green. So I, I did that on the medal on Saturday and dera- derailed my round. So yeah, I can definitely sympathize with that. I was going yeah. all right. And then yeah. Yeah, I had to make two chips from 12. Yeah. I'm, I just am get greedy though. You, you just get greedy, don't you? you do. Rather than you uh, on a par five as well, where it's like you're trying to, you know, I was green. I'd missed the green on a pretty gettable par five. Um, was trying to chip it close inside 10 feet to make birdie and then got too cute, hung it up in the rough on a down slope, really short sighted. Um, right. And you walk off with bogey and you're just like, if I'd have chipped that out to 30 feet and give, give myself a look, but right. that's the game, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, that's that the discipline you need. The that's 100% the game for sure. Uh, yeah. I was just going to close with one sort of final point on, um, on maybe sort of bridging the gap with some of the co- our course architecture friends. Cause you, as you may know, we, we are, we cover course architecture fairly extensively on the pod as well as some of the kind of, um, you know, the, the current, um, new age thinking in the game. Um, what do you see as being maybe some of the, the greatest defenses to, uh, hitting the ball further. I mean, course arch- from a course architecture standpoint, we hear it's all about angles and giving people multiple, um, you know, different options to, uh, in terms of how they play the hole. Um, centerline bunkers, these kind of things that maybe seem a bit antiquated or, or, or quirks of the game. Now, where, where do you kind of sit on all of that? I think I recall you posting something on your Twitter uh, maybe a week or two ago about about trees being an effective deterrent. But then again, the architecture crowd maybe aren't aren't so happy with that. Um, could you maybe just yeah give us a sort of potted sort of summary of your your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, first I'll, I'll say that uh, there's some folks out there that think I'm I'm just a some gorilla that wants to see 500 yard drives. You know, I do. That's not true. I, mean, I I appreciate good ar- architecture. I appreciate old courses, um, and I sur- I understand where people are coming from. And I think some of the Twitter debates um, that you see, I, I think Twitter is the is the is the worst place to have that mm. debate um, because. If I were talking face to face with some of those folks, it would be a you can't you can't hear tone of voice, you can't see body language, you can't interpret any of those things. You're just seeing written word, and I'm as guilty as as anybody else on and putting my own tone and inflection and intention in there. And so I think sometimes the Twitter debates are they're not as they're not uh, they're not useful. Um, as far as some of the things you mentioned, like angles. You know, I, that was one of the early things I did you know, when I first started blogging about analytics was I looked at angles. And I grew up, you know, pins on the right, put it on the left side of the fairway for the best angle to the pin. I, I thought that was going to be what my research showed. And it didn't. The angle doesn't matter that much. Only in really extreme 
situations, does the angle make a bit of a difference? And a good example there would be if you lay up on number 10 at Riviera, right? Being in the left side of the fairway there um, is better than being in the right side of the fairway. But what people have to factor in is if you are chasing an angle, that means you are aiming closer to trouble. So you're aiming closer to one side of the fairway. And any advantage you get from the better angle is going to be washed away by the fact that some of the time you're going to end up in the rough or you're going to end up in a bunker or, or you know, the architect, they're not dumb. They're, they're putting trouble there. They, they realize that this side of the fairway is a better angle um, and they're going to entice you to go for that side of the fairway, but they're going to put trouble over there so that a certain percentage of the time you will end up in trouble. And so if you play that hole a thousand times, um, trying to chase the angle is going to, wash away any advantage you're going to get because some portion of the time you will end up in the rough, which negates any benefit you're going to get. And so the most important thing off the tee is, is find the fairway. Center your pattern over the fairway to find the fairway. Don't chase an angle. Um, some of the times you will, you will get the benefit of your, remember, you have a shotgun pattern, and some of the time you will end up with a good angle. By trying to center your shot pattern over the fairway, just by definition, some of the time you'll have the good angle. Some of the time you'll have the, the, the worst angle from the fairway. But you're going to maximize the number of times you're going to be in the fairway. How many times have you been just off the fairway or a few yards off the fairway on the proper side of the hole and been in the rough and thought, you know, I would be 40 yards to my right on the bad side of the fairway? but I'd be in the fairway and I prefer that over being in the rough. So around mm. angles, yes, sometimes they matter, especially on um, more extreme conditions like Riviera number 10, but trying to chase that is, um, you know, is the, uh, is fool's gold. And I think that's the balance between the analytics and the, you know, the architecture side. You had somebody, I forget the name, but you had somebody on a while ago that talked about big data and course architecture. Mm, sure, Hill Analytics, uh, yeah. Harry yeah. Clark, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think that there's this marriage between the data folks and the architecture folks where, you know, we can use what we know about the game. We can, we can design holes where I can be given multiple decisions and, if I choose driver versus choosing three wood, I have about the same expected score, right? As a math guy, if I'm analyzing a hole and there's a clear choice, um, it's driver all day or it's three wood all day, whatever the case may be. When there's a clear choice, when the numbers give you a clear choice, it, that's the choice. But if I do an yeah. analysis on a hole and the expected score for driver is the same as three wood, to me, that's a really well-designed hole because now as a player or as someone advising a player, now I have options that are about the same. Um, and I think that's different from a risk-reward type of a situation, which is maybe a different architectural question. But I think overall in general, trying to design courses or holes that give me multiple options that have about the same expected score makes for really hard decisions for players. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, t totally. Definitely. Lou, we're very respectful of our guest's time on this pod, and you've been very giving of yours. So um, we want to kind of say a big thank you for joining. Hopefully it's not the last time we get you on, because uh, 
I think there's a lot more good stuff in there to come out, but we've really enjoyed kind of spending a bit of time and talking all that through with you. And um, yeah, we just want to say a big thank you for joining the pod and uh, hopefully we'll get to speak soon when we're the other side of all this craziness. Yeah, that, uh, I appreciate again you guys having me on. It was a lot of fun. I'd love to do it again. And, and so I'm starting to, to learn a little bit about the Premier League. So next time you can mix in a few questions around that and, and maybe I'll be able to sound somewhat intelligent when I talk about it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. Cheers, Lee. That was very insightful. Thanks again, guys. I appreciate it. Watch this.